Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. You can suggest future guests and questions on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. And today is one of the most special episodes we have ever done. Why? Well, a number of reasons. But first, we have not one, but two incredible unicorn CEOs joining us in the hot seat. Second, as a total SaaS nerd, I have to admit, they are literally two of my biggest heroes. And then three, because after one acquired the other late last year, they now form one of the most formidable and exciting forces in the the world of SaaS. Can you guess? Well, first, I'm stoked to welcome Jeff Lawson, founder and CEO at Twilio, the company building the future of communications, allowing you to engage customers like never before on voice, SMS, WhatsApp, or video. And prior to their IPO in 2016, Twilio had raised over $250 million in VC funding from some of the very best in the business, including USV, Bessemer, Salesforce, and Techstars, just to name a few. As for Jeff, prior to founding Twilio, Jeff was the founder and CTO at Nine Star Inc and enjoyed a spell at Amazon as a technical product manager. And if having Jeff on the show was not enough for my SaaS excitement, we have Samir Delakia also in the hot seat. Now, Samir is the CEO at SendGrid, the category leader in email delivery, reaching half of the world's digital users every three months. And as I said, last year, Twilio acquired SendGrid, bringing email into one seamless customer engagement platform. As for Samir, prior to joining SendGrid, he spent four years at Citrix, where he drove the company's product strategy for cloud infrastructure and server virtualization. Samir joined the company in 2010 when Citrix acquired VM Logics, where he served as CEO and doubled revenues during each year of his tenure. Before that, he worked for 12 years at Trilogy, where he held key leadership roles, helping the company grow from a startup to a $300 million business. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Ryan McIntyre at Foundry, Ethan Kurzweil, Byron Dieter, David Cohen, and Scott Rainey for providing some really fantastic questions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into this incredible episode today, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. And this time we'll hear from Tony Schmidt, founder and CEO at Greek Track. Greek Track is an online platform helping fraternities and sororities, both headquarters and local chapters, with their membership, financial management, events, and collecting dues. Hi, Harry. Here at Greek Track, we focus on every single support ticket as a design opportunity. So we don't just solve a support ticket and close it, but we take it all the way down to the development team and try and find a solution that will completely eliminate that type of support ticket forever. Fantastic to hear, Tony, and absolutely an obsessive focus on solving support issues is a great way to achieve success. And to find out how to successfully grow payments revenue by over 100% in a year, check out our Team Snap case study by visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. And speaking of must-checkouts there with that case study, you must check out Troops.ai. Troops.ai helps teams improve real-time visibility and collaboration around their most important deals by creating real-time, intelligent workflow for everything related to their customers and prospects. And they make this happen in Slack, where everyone is spending most of their time so that the entire team can swarm around opportunities. But don't take my word for how great Troops is. Just look at their clients. They're working with the likes of Slack, WeWork, Envision, Flexport, and more. So head over to troops.ai to find out more. And speaking of great products that make your life and work easier and faster, you must check out Pilot. Pilot is a bookkeeping company that handles everything for you, so you can stop spending your time tracking financial statements and making cash flow spreadsheets. We all know how much I love to do that. When you use Pilot, you get a dedicated account manager who takes care of your books and sends you an accurate, detailed financial report every month. Plus, Pilot does accrual basis bookkeeping and QuickBooks online, so you're never locked into a proprietary platform. Add Pilot to your financial stack and get back to what you do best, running your business. Simply head over to pilot.com forward slash Sasta to learn more. But enough from me, so now I'm so excited 
to hand over to Jeff Lawson and Samir Delakia. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jeff and Samir, I mean, what can I say? I've heard so many great things, both from David Cohen and from Byron Dieter. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having us. Not at all, but I want to start today with a little context. So Jeff, how did you come to found Twilio? And then Samir, how did you come to be CEO at Sengrid? And I'll let you decide who goes first. Sure, I'll give you the the 45-minute background. (laughs) Uh, Now, really quickly, I am a software developer, and I started multiple companies before Twilio. You know, one of them, I was the first CTO of StubHub. Then I was the, one of the first product managers at Amazon Web Services. And when I left Amazon, I thought about what I wanted to start next. And I realized that every single one of the companies I had started previously, there were two things in common. Number one, we use the power of software to iterate quickly, to build ideas for our customers, put them out in front of customers quickly, learn, and then iterate. That's the superpower of software. And also at every one of those companies, we needed communications. We needed to engage with our customers in clever and creative ways or integrated with the software building. And every time it happened, I would say, well, I'm a software developer. I don't know how to make the phone ring. That's that's like magical. I have no idea how that works. So I go to the telecommunications industry people like carriers and the hardware manufacturers and I say, you know, how do we build up this idea that we have? And every time I got this very unfulfilling answer, it was like, oh yeah, you're going to roll out these you know copper wires from a carrier to your data center, and then you're going to rack up a bunch of hardware, and then you're going to buy a bunch of software, and then you're going to bring in a small army of professional services to come integrate the whole thing. And it's going to take you two years, and it's going to take a few million dollars like let's get started and every time that happened i said this is insane like this is the complete opposite of software you know software it's like you know you have an idea you build something quickly a minimum viable product you put it out in front of your customers and you start learning right away but when communications was involved suddenly your iteration cycles took years and millions of hours that was insane and so we started twilio to solve the problem of bringing communications out of its legacy which is in hardware and physical networks and bring it into its future which is software and in doing so empower all the software developers in the world to be able to incorporate communications into all the apps that they're building and to enable their companies to really engage with their customers in the most amazing ways possible. And what a journey it's been. Samir, I I do want to switch over to you. How did the CEO role at Sangrid come about? And I do have a little bit of context personally from Ryan, but I want to hear this from you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Sangrid's an amazing business with a founding story similar to what Jeff described, uh, three developers, Tim, Isaac, Jose, awesome guys who who saw the same problem in a different communication channel, focused really on email and how developers had to be able to drive growth in their applications by engaging their users. And email is an important channel to do that. They got going in 2009. I ended up joining the company about five years in, in 2014. So SendGrid had already gone from zero to 30 million in revenue or so over that time frame. We hit a couple bumpy patches of scaling and how we had to get to the next level. And I got the great privilege of coming in to try to help with that in 2014. And my word, what a role you've done in, in developing that and navigating some of those uh, bumpy patches. But I, how can I not start today on the, the big news recently of Twilio acquiring Sangrid? Now, I always think of good acquisitions like relationships with both parties really weighing up the pros and cons and deciding to unite. Now, every investor that I spoke to of yours asked this question. So with that in mind, specifically Ethan Kurzweil at Bessemer asked, how did you assess the culture fit between the companies and between yourselves when contemplating joining forces and what made you so excited again i'll leave it to you to decide who goes
always first, but let's start with that. Sure. I mean, you know, to me, I think there's an interesting, you know, parallel track here of both companies. Both companies were founded by developers. And I think having that developer DNA early in the stages of both companies really created a lot of common ground as it relates to the values of the company. Yeah. Because I think, you know, developers do operate a certain way. You know, we tend to overly generalize an entire profession <laughs> of 25 million people. But like, I don't know. I think developers tend to be thoughtful. They yeah. tend to like some of our values that I think really play out for a lot of developers are no shenanigans, mm. um, be honest, direct, transparent. There's a certain intellectual honesty of like trying to get to the answers. There's a curiosity. And I think a lot of those founding principles that both companies really started with in their DNA persist through to this day, you know, 11 yeah. years later, that really makes the two companies very compatible because we've approached the world in a similar way for a very long period of time. And so I think that was the sort of the founding basis of it. And then sort of yeah. how we assess it is another interesting question. I mean, Samir, what, what, how, how did you assess it? You know, it was interesting. When, when I was thinking about it, the other one that really mattered to me as we were going through it was a, another quality or trait that I have seen in spades here at Twilio and I've seen in SoCor to the SendGrid culture, which is around humility. Being humble was in both of our value sets from the very beginning. And that, I think, if I were to reflect on SendGrid's culture from its inception, was probably its most distinguishing or different, like the thing that was most unique about it relative to many other businesses, companies I've worked at. And I saw that reflected so strongly in Twilio, in you, in Jeff, when I was in all of our conversations and all the folks I'd ever interacted with, all the Twilians I'd ever met. That was, to me, how I assessed. That's how I knew that this was going to work. It was principally around that singular characteristic. I love that focus on humility that you mentioned there, Samir. I, I do have to ask, and this is slightly unfair of me going off schedule, but I'm too intrigued. I kind of associate sometimes humility also with vulnerability. And I'm interested for you both as leaders, how do you kind of navigate between the balance of vulnerability, but also strength as leaders and showing that overarching confidence to the team? Is there an internal balance for you? And how do you think about that? I mean, I think your power as a leader comes from authenticity. It comes from trust. And people trust you when you are vulnerable, when you're authentic, when they know that they're dealing with a real human being. And that's, you know, generally speaking, how I approach the job. And, and I've noticed, yeah. you know, Samir approaches the job too, which is if you be your authentic self, and that means being vulnerable at times, that's what causes people to trust you and want to follow you if you're building a company that is built on these kinds of values. Yeah. And I think folks absolutely agree with everything Jeff said. There's deep respect that I myself have when I see leaders. And I see this in Jeff. I commented on it in our, we had an ET meeting just yesterday where I commented on it, where I see him behaving that way. And it creates a deep respect, I think, from people around you when you exhibit that humility and vulnerability of, you're not trying to pretend to be perfect. We all know none of us are. And it's about assessing those things. But to your point about confidence and, and showing confidence, I think that every CEO, uh, every entrepreneur listening, boy, you have to have deep conviction in what you are setting out to do in your strategy, your mission, your purpose. Absolutely, you have to exhibit those with a great deal of depth. But boy, if you make mistakes as a leader, or if you think you have areas to get better, or you want to go compliment yourself in a different space, I think sharing those with the people around you will do nothing but engender trust and respect. I totally agree with you there, and I love that focus on authenticity. It's super interesting, though, when kind of thinking of the acquisition and the merging of two great companies and cultures, because I know that you kind of created a new value set for the new kind of pro forma company to adopt. I have to ask them, what did that formulation look like, and what was the thinking of this new value set for you both as the leaders? Yeah, it was an interesting point in time. So at Twilio, we had a set of nine 
nine themes for our original values. And we set those out in 2011. And then a few years later, we realized that there was a bunch of things missing about what we expected from a leadership standpoint, actually. And instead of morphing those nine things to incorporate some of the missing leadership traits, we built another list. We called them our leadership principles. And we had eight leadership principles. And we operated for several years with this list of 17 things that was, you know, essentially the written words describing the culture of Twilio. That's what I think of values. Values are written words. Culture is, is actually how you live. And we knew that we wanted to simplify this because 17 things is a lot for anyone to, to really hold on to. And we also observed over time that how they got lived, you know, there's some overlap between the ones, there's some redundancy. And so we knew we wanted to do that. And then along came the opportunity to bring Sanger into the fold. And they had their four things, the four H's. Yeah, yeah. And the timing was just perfect where it happened to be that Tulia was already evaluating that. And it provided such a great opportunity to come together. And Jeff had gone to all the different sites across Twilio and been having active conversation about this and came to the SendGrid site and said, hey, we want to incorporate the SendGrid perspective here as well. And, and Jeff and I remember deeply, like we had a great conversation over my kitchen table at nine o'clock at night during the M&A process on culture, on values, on where we were similar, but I think equally importantly about where we were different. And all of that kind of played in, I think, ultimately to the shaping of what netted on the back end of all that. And so we were able to then introduce the new set of values that Twilio came up with to the new Twilio, to the new combined company. And it was sort of funny because we had our 17 things and Samir, you had four H's. Yeah. So yours was, like I thought, it's too, it's too short. Too short. Too <laughs> yeah. And so we wanted to go, like, what's the happy spot between those? We ended up with our 10 things yeah. and we called them the Twilio Magic. And it really is something that, you know, you hear it around Twilio a lot. There's just this sense that people get when they work here, when they walk in the front door, guests hear it, interviewees, I hear it all the time. They so, like, sort of this magic when you walk in the door, this feel, this positive energy, this vibe that you get. So we're really trying to capture what it means to, to get the job done. How do we make decisions? How do we act? How do we win? And that's how we framed our new set of principles that we call the Twilio magic. And it incorporates really the best, I think, of Twilio's values, of Sengrid's values, but also makes them more concise and therefore easier to live by. And that's ultimately the goal of any set of values of a company. They're set of written words that people can live by. And I'm sure the team are very thankful for the reduction from 17 to 10. <laughs> I do want to ask, you said the word magic there. And one of the kind of elements that allowed for the dizzying heights that you both have reached today was really the kind of introduction of the developer-first approach that you really pioneered with Twilio here, Jeff. So I, I do have to ask on this, because it's one that I've really actually grown up with. I can't actually really remember a time without developer-first as a very obvious and, and brilliant strategy. So this was quite a contrarian thought at the time, though, I'm told. And so what was the original thesis and thinking here? And have you seen it develop and evolve over time with markets interaction? Absolutely. I mean, I think that if you think about the grand arc of technologies, to take technologies that are very first, generally speaking, expensive and esoteric and difficult to use, and difficult to implement, and then over time, be able to make them more and more accessible to more and more people. And I think that's the general arc of technology. And that is now happening for the developers of the world. And I think it's happened in certain realms for long periods of time with developers. You know, developers, it used to be you'd have to wait a second 
assembly code for a particular CPU in order to write software. But then along came compiled languages, and then came operating systems that made it standardized across all the hardware, and then came the web, and then scripting languages. And so the, the general arc of making computers easier and easier to build upon is one that, you know, that's, those are the shoulders that we stand upon that have been building for, for 50 plus years. But the most recent incarnation of it was really moving all of that to the cloud and providing infrastructure as a service. When I think about what you see happening before you with this developer-first approach that Twilio was very early to introduce, I think it is a maturation of the supply chain of software. And if you think about every company is becoming a software company. Every company is having to build software in the cloud, on mobile, you know, web applications, mobile applications, backend services. Every company, whether you are a tech startup, a bank, an airline, a hotel, you name it, a retailer, every company is having to become great at building software. And that means you have to build quickly, you have to listen to your customers, it has to be scalable, it has to be secure, it has to be reliable. And every company cannot figure out every piece of that themselves. They need to rely on a supply chain in order to do a great job of that. And so the developers, the people tasked with building all that innovation for every company, it's natural that they would want to turn to companies to help them do their job faster, better, more easily, and get the outcomes that the business is ultimately paying them to achieve. And that's why the time is perfect here for the supply chain to mature, for developers to have these very reliable, very scalable APIs that do important pieces of the functionality that they need to accomplish with their applications, marry it to a moment in time when it's becoming more and more and more critical that they succeed in building those innovations, lest their company be disrupted by somebody else. And so it's this a hot moment in time where mobile and the web and the cloud come together with developers being the people leading the charge inside of every company that is causing the need and therefore the market demand for infrastructure services like Twilio, like SendGrid, to make every developer more effective, faster, and expand the universe of things they can build to move their company's mission forward. I love that thesis on kind of the maturation of, of software there. I do have to ask it on the flip side, Samir. For you, you adopted this approach and really integrated into an existing strategy. What were some of the biggest challenges of doing so? And maybe what advice would you give to others who are, are contemplating doing the same, given your incredible experience and hindsight? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Isaac and the team in the very early days, obviously shared investors and, and backgrounds. I'm, I'm, no question that that was front and center in, in their minds as well to, to really serve the developer. And serving the developer and the entrepreneur has been at the core of building the brand of the company and building the business itself. And I think Jeff and I often will talk about how you could go to a, a hackathon or a developer event, a startup event, and you would probably see a blue hoodie SendGrid developer evangelist uh, at a table right next to uh, Twilio red track jacket wearing a uh, developer evangelist. And they were there to help. And they weren't there to sell. They were there to help and be helpful to empowering those builders of the world that were building the next generation of technologies, innovations, and applications. And I think that when you have that kind of spirit and mindset going into it, it actually, you know, the, the challenges were few and far between, frankly. You know, I mean, the, the challenges, I would say, is making sure you, you have CEOs who believe in that 
who aren't pressing on what's the ROI of those two people showing up at that particular event in a hard and fast put in a spreadsheet. That's hard to do. But build when you know it's just the right thing to do. It's but you're building a brand, you know you're serving that particular base of customers, these developers, that you know that's going to play. And that has played out for us as being critically important over the long term. But for folks who are building, uh, whether it's a developer first motion or, or any persona specific motion, I would just say focus with know your intention when you start that process and uh, and make sure you're committed to investing in it and invest in it. It's going to be and you're going to end up with a lot of debate and conversation with your leadership team or board members on the specific ROI of it. You're going to have to have conviction that it's going to play out and work out in the long term. The funny thing is, I remember when we first started, like there would be like big companies like, well, you know, we have, we have our developer strategy. Yeah. And, you know, like, and they'd show up with like a lot of money and suits yeah. and like stuff like that. And like, you know, developers can just tell like when they're being pitched, yeah. when they're being sold <laughs> like a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And developers have also been burned so many times by companies yeah. whose strategy of the moment was like developers. Yeah. And then like when that didn't suddenly materialize into a billion dollar business, like yeah. overnight, they was okay, our new strategy, you know, <laughs> VR, right? They totally. turned their backs and they turned to the next strategy. And it was like, so I think developers do have a, a healthy amount of skepticism for companies trying to pitch them. And that's where, again, the humility and the words that we use are really true serving developers. Yeah. And the fact that like our company's products treat the developers as the customer, yeah. not as a strategy is yeah. a really big deal. Yeah. Because if you're a customer, you know that you are important to the company, mm-hmm. right? Customers, developers want to be served like customers, not like a pawn in some you yeah. know, giant game of corporate chess. Yeah. And I think that's another important thing that both uh, Twilio and Sengrid approach this market as like developers. You're not some strategy. You are our customer. And we're here to treat you incredibly well. And that I think was new. And by the way, when we started Twilio, it was very much not conventional wisdom that developers were a market. And I had to convince a lot of investors who initially said, you know, that sounds like an interesting idea, but developers aren't a market. Developers don't have the checkbook. Developers don't make any decisions. So come back to me when you figure out a real product that you can sell to a company. And, uh, you know, we got that people quite a bit yeah. in the early days. I of bet. Bet. And, uh, you know, we, in fact, we spent the whole summer of 2008 trying to fundraise and didn't raise a dime. Now, it didn't help that the financial markets were collapsing and everything else was going on. Yeah. But the biggest piece of feedback on our business was go find a market and come back to me. And uh, the thing was, we listened to our customers. Right? We had developers who were using early versions of Twilio, giving us great feedback, using it, launching things, yeah. wanting to pay us. So ultimately, we listened to customers instead of the investors. And I think that led us in the right direction. I want to touch on one element. You specifically said that the word strategy, Jeff. And it's really interesting for me, product strategy, because when we chatted Samir before, you said to me that maybe you think Sangrid added secondary lines of products a little bit too late. Twilio added secondary products slightly earlier. So I'd love to touch on this element of what is the thinking here on how to fundamentally think about when's the right time to add those secondary products and that strategic mindset to product introduction, so to speak. Yeah, I know it just in the second group case, I'll, I'll speak to, you know, we had an incredible opportunity to extend what we were doing at the API layer to cover email marketing. It's a big market opportunity, builds on everything that we've already been doing. Customers have been pushing us to do it. And we were just very reluctant to go there, given the often recited guidance from investors and board members to focus. And that led to focus on the core was great, but we didn't get act two started until too late. 
I would argue we could have done it earlier. And had we, to, to Jeff's point, listened to the customer demand more so than other voices, I think we would have gotten more wood behind the arrow behind our second act earlier, which would have accelerated the growth trajectory of the company. And I think as entrepreneurs, there is all sorts of advice that you get about focus, 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 find a niche, get rich. There's all sorts of cute phrases, <laughs> concept, but I've always rejected that advice. You know, first of all, it's like there is a conventional wisdom that says just do one thing and do it well. But I believed that for basically two reasons that we want to, you know, not like do a poor job of like the first thing. So in order to move on, but actually build a system that is resilient enough that you can build one thing, but not have to dwell on that one thing for a decade before you think about the next. Yeah. And that is, I think, two things. As a customer-focused company, I think you have actually an obligation to go solve customers' problems. And it's easy to say, no, no, we're just going to do this one thing. And we're just, when customers come to you, it's like, yeah, I know that one thing. Thank you for that. But hey, there's these other related problems that are just, I'm really hoping you can solve these. A not customer-focused company, it's kind of self-serving. No, no, no. Why did they just get rich? We're just going to do one thing. But if you're truly a customer-focused company, then when you hear those problems that you can solve for your customer, you take it personally. You take it as an obligation to go and solve those subsequent problems and make your customer's life better. And by the way, by doing so, making your own company stronger, build a better business. And the other thing I would say is because what we do is software, the costs and the risks of actually experimenting, listening to those customers and saying, hmm, I hear your problem. Hey, what about this? Would this solve your problem? By the way, you can actually test hypotheses with customers without writing a single line of code, which is what I would recommend people do. But once you feel like you've got your finger on the pulse of how to solve the right problem for your customers, then writing software is, in the grand scheme of things, one of the cheapest and most scalable forms of innovation humanity has ever seen. Think about it. you got a blinking person, and you can like type some magic codes yeah. into a blinking like a, a, a blinking cursor and suddenly you've made a global network of like thousands or millions of computers to do your bidding. It's like, why wouldn't you do that all day, every day? The hardest thing to do in business is to discover an unsolved problem that your customers need you to solve. I believe that. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest thing in business is discovering a truly big unsolved problem. And once you discover that unsolved problem, actually writing the code or building the yeah. beginning of a product that you can start to iterate off of, that's the easy part. Why wouldn't you take yeah. three engineers and a product manager to go start learning more about that problem and figure out how to solve it when you can, when you have a company with the resources to do it? You have to do that responsibly. Yeah. But to me, it's that combination of one, the obligation to your customers as a customer-focused company that requires you to go learn about their problems and figure out how you can solve them. Now, yes, you have to make smart decisions about is it adjacent, does it make sense for your business? But then number two, the low cost of doing that innovation, of starting that innovation. You can get started with very little investment yeah. and very little risk and then see where it goes. That's what led us to very early on. You know, we were one product company when we launched in 2008, Twilio Voice. In 2010, just two years later, we launched our second product, Twilio SMS. And you know, I'm incredibly glad that we did that and we've continued 
that pace of innovation throughout the course of the company, whether it's introducing Twilio Video, Twilio Chat, or you know all the different channels like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. We now have uh, products that allow you to program Alexa and Google Home, and even our newest product, Twilio Flex, uh, the contact center application platform. I feel like it's in our DNA to go listen to customers, hear their problems, and then have teams go work with those customers to figure out how we can solve them with, with great products. In determining whether to build those new products, I, I do have to ask, you mentioned that the cost of experimenting being so low in software. Would you say that's the primary factor that really influences your decision making? Or is it the opportunity cost of the potential product that you may or may not build? Is it the kind of internal capacity within the team? What do you think is the primary driver in determining the yes or the no to that opportunity that may have arisen? Well, look, I think that so much of our management techniques and of business wisdom that is out there today is based on the industrial era, where it's like, hmm, should we go spin up a you know light new factory, truck? Yeah, yeah, build a new factory, <laughs> and to manufacture light trucks or whatever? And you're like, okay, that's a big business decision. Like, yeah. sure, you, you got to think about that a lot. You can actually like, there's gonna be shovels involved. I get it, right? <laughs> but with software, it's literally, you know, what is the cost of building a prototype is often an afternoon of some idea, flesh it out, write a little bit of code. We call them steel threads here, and put it in front of customers and see if it's interesting. And when your cost to innovation is so low, yeah. why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you? Yeah. you take as many at-bats as you can? I love the Bezos uh, shareholder letter a few years ago. He made the analogy. Like people often talk about the analogy of business of wanting to get at-bats, just like you do in baseball. The more at-bats you have, the better chances you have of hitting a home run. And I certainly believe that in the case of software. Yeah. And, and then that, he continued. Yeah. The analogy said the difference, though, is that in baseball, the very best outcome you can have is a grand slam. Four home runs. Yeah. Like four runs, right? And but in business, yeah. you can hit a billion run yeah. grand slam. Like if you have the right idea. Yeah. And so that makes it even more important for you to invest in your at bats. And I just tend to ascribe to that being a software developer myself. I've always thought hmm, it's so easy and cheap to go play with code to go figure out if you can solve a customer's problem that I just love that process. I, and the one ad I would have to what Jeff said, I'd highlight one comment he made earlier identifying the big unsolved problems of the world for the entrepreneurs listening. Make sure they're big. Like if you're going to go spend time on them, make sure they're big opportunities, big at-bats where you can swing. And if you're going to have it be your second big product line, go and find a big market. I'm totally with you on the big market. And before we move into the quick fire, I do just have to jump on that, Samir, because as a VC also by day, we often always say kind of go for big markets. But there's also the newer wisdom that's go for these niche markets that expand into much bigger markets with time. How do you think about go for the big market today versus go for the big market tomorrow thinking? I think it's absolutely reasonable to say I'm going to pick off every great journey starts that first step. And, and so if you've got a clear line of sight to the big market by starting on something that isn't one yet, but you've got conviction that that's where it's going, then by all means, start with the smaller. But you just want to make sure that there's a path to it. My word, I am absolutely loving this show, but this is where I really root putting a time limit on the 20 minute VC. But I do want to move into my favorite element being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and essentially you give me your immediate thoughts. Normally we do 60 seconds per answer, but given the special dual interview, we're going to try and do 30 seconds per answer if that works well for you. Are you ready? We're in. Sign us up. Let's do it. So your favorite book and why? I'm going to go with Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. I just return to it every time I'm trying to figure out how do I relay some complex idea to the world, whether it's pitching investors, whether it's giving a keynote, whether it's talking to my employees, whether it's telling the vision of the company. Made to Stick is one of those books that I always go back to when I get new insights every time I read it. 
uh, that just helps you understand how to say things that people will remember. And that's such a fundamental leadership skill that yeah. we all need. Love that. Um, mine, I would go uh, Built to Last. It was the first probably business book I ever read. It was like in the mid-90s. I was 21 years old and I was required reading at the company I was joining. And it framed the way I think about wanting to build companies that are iconic, here for the long term, that have a mission and a core purpose to them. They're people-centric. And I think it's a big part of why I'm excited to be here. Totally. I think we're doing all those things. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time, obviously founding Twilio and then with Sangrid, respectively? Samir's pointing at me. I think I would say talk to people. Don't assume. And I think that sometimes, like, I'm an introvert, so I'm like, if I can avoid some conversation, I will. That would be my natural tendency. <laughs> but whenever you're trying to figure out some sort of hard situation, just go talk to people and get their point of view. And paraphrase Aaron Burr, you know, talk less, listen more. <laughs> There you I, go. That's what I wish I really thought more about. Create Hamilton reference. Um, I wish I had just gone faster. Making calls, going faster. It's always better. <laughs> that would be my simple, as for all the entrepreneurs listening, uh, they all understand speed. What motto or quote do you frequently revert back to? I've got a few that are easy to remember because I actually made them the values of the company. <laughs> <laughs> No shenanigans, draw the owl, be an owner, but actually one that's not a value of the company that that I always really like to remind people of is like, the world was built by people just like us. And it's easy to think that, well, we're not capable of this, have that imposter syndrome. We can't achieve that big goal. Those people who who built those innovations prior to us, like they were special. They were different. It's like, no, no, no. The world was built by people just like you and me. We can accomplish anything. That was awesome. What would yours be? Mine's hard. It's more of a parable than a quote, but I talk about it a lot. My mom told it to my brother and I when we were little kids. It was, um, we all enter this world as babies with our fists clenched, kicking and screaming. When we all leave this world, we leave at peace with our hands open. Our entering the world, we're all holding a unique gift and the purpose of life is to determine what that gift is and then give of it freely. And when you are done, your time will have passed. And that notion, I always love that parable because it just focused on giving and others and not you. I think that's a, it's a powerful one in a lot of aspects of life from business to personal to family. Now, I'm using this advantageously for myself here, but I've just joined my first board. You both have uh, some incredible board experience. If you were to advise me on what I can do to be the best board member, what would your advice be? Remembering that being a board member is not being an operator and remembering which decisions you're there to support versus make. And I think that that's a, it's a hard one, particularly for folks who have a lot of operating experience, to remember that distinction. And I've seen boards uh, be content with the readouts, and I would just not allow the board to believe that their job is just to oversee and like get receive the readouts and nod, cross your arms and nod a lot, but rather say, look, we're here to help you build a business. We're partners. We're just another type of leadership team the company has, bringing the company's big problems to us, not just the, don't make it seem like, okay, everything's perfect, yeah, and yeah. everything's under control. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Bring us the hard problems. Yeah. Exercise our brain. We're here to help you build a great business, not just you know look over your shoulder yeah. and encourage the leadership team to treat you that way. The way in which you engage in problem solving as a board member is super important as to whether or not you have this, expect the CEO to bring more problems to you in the future. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the right way to engage in that respect? Uh, I think it's constructively. There's not the finger pointing. It's not, boy, I think you're incompetent <laughs> as a result. Of, but 
you know, if someone is bringing you a problem, it's I'm on your side of the table. I'm rolling up my sleeves with you, and we're going to dig in and solve this together and be an active problem solver versus judging the problem and the person bringing it to you. I mean, I absolutely love that, and I think you should invoice me for that advice. But I do want to finish on my final question, which is a broad and a meta one. But what does the next five years look like for the incredible now Twilio and Sangrid? And paint that roadmap and vision for me. Absolutely. I mean, we are just getting started. It is day one of the transformation of the world's communications from its legacy in hardware to its future in software. And for Twilio, our next five years is really about unlocking the full potential for every company to engage with their customers in the most compelling and natural and uh, trustworthy ways possible. We think that every company should be leveraging the full power of software to make their relationships with their customers as tight as can be. And I think that most companies are truly at the beginning of that journey. And at Twilio, we want to help unlock all the potential that companies have to really innovate and figure out how do we build very tight relationships because of the power of digital communications with their customers. And that's really what all of our products are designed to help companies do. And as we continue working with more and more companies to increase the amount of communications, the amount of engagement they build across every part of their customer's life cycle and every touch point that they have with their customers, we seem to be able to unlock more and more and more magic in their customer bases, in their potential. And we want to help every company bring out the full potential that they have to engage their customers. Jeff and Samir, I do have to say, this has been one of those episodes which makes me so thankful to be able to do the show. I want to say a huge thank you for giving up the time. And it really has been such a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, Harry. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I think that has to be one of the biggest highlights of my interviewing career. I want to say a huge thank you to both Jeff and Samir for giving up the time today. Not an easy thing, but I really do so appreciate it. Likewise, I would love to see you behind the scenes here on Instagram. You can do that at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. And this time we'll hear from Tony Schmidt, founder and CEO at Greek Track. Greek Track is an online platform helping fraternities and sororities both headquarters and local chapters with their membership, financial management, events, and collecting dues. Hi, Harry. Here at Greek Track, we focus on every single support ticket as a design opportunity. So we don't just solve a support ticket and close it, but we take it all the way down to the development team and try and find a solution that will completely eliminate that type of support ticket forever. Fantastic to hear, Tony. And absolutely, an obsessive focus on solving support issues is a great way to achieve success. And to find out how to successfully grow payment revenue by over 100% in a year. Check out our Team Snap case study by visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. And speaking of must-checkouts there with that case study, you must check out Troops.ai. Troops.ai helps teams improve real-time visibility and collaboration around their most important deals by creating real-time, intelligent workflow for everything related to their customers and prospects. And they make this happen in Slack, where everyone is spending most of their time so that the entire team can swarm around opportunities. But don't take my word for how great Troops is. Just look at their clients. They're working with the likes of Slack, WeWork, Envision, Flexport, and more. So head over to Troops.ai to find out more. And speaking of great products that make your life and work easier and faster, you must check out Pilot. Pilot is a bookkeeping company that handles everything for you, so you can stop spending your time tracking financial statements and making cash flow spreadsheets. We all know how much I love to do that. When you use Pilot, you get a dedicated account manager who takes care of your books, 
books and sends you an accurate, detailed financial report every month. Plus, Pilot does accrual-based bookkeeping in QuickBooks Online, so you're never locked into a proprietary platform. Add Pilot to your financial stack and get back to what you do best, running your business. Simply head over to pilot.com forward slash Sasta to learn more. As always, your tuning in and support just means the world to me, and I cannot wait to bring you another brilliant episode next week.